understanding the doctrine of Christ and strengthening our testimony is a labor that will bring real joy and satisfaction. We need to consistently study the words of Christ as found in the scriptures and the words of living prophets. For behold, the words of Christ will tell you all things what you should do. Studying is then another essential key to become a better disciple of Jesus Christ. Prayer and scripture study go hand in hand. They work together for our benefit. This is the process that the Lord has established. To feast means more than to taste. To feast means to savor. We savor the scriptures by studying them in a spirit of delightful discovery and faithful obedience. When we feast upon the words of Christ, they are embedded in the fleshy tables of the heart. All right, today we've got Genesis chapters 6 through 11 and Moses 8. And um, we got a lot of good stuff in here. Um, got Noah and his ark, and we've also got the Tower of Babel. So some of the bigger stories from the from the Bible. One of the things that first stuck out to me as I started reading chapter 6 was in verse 4. Because I remember reading this before and being like, okay, what does this even mean? It says, there were giants in the earth in those days and also after that. When the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, and the same became mighty men which were of old, men of renown. And giants, you know, uh, it's brought up a couple times in the scriptures, but we, we hear about Goliath being a giant. We hear about all these different people being referred to as giants. I've heard, a, have you ever heard people say it might have been dinosaurs? Or yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a quote, though, by... Um, Rasmussen in a book called Latter-day Saint Commentary on the Old Testament. Rather than indicating that they were mythical giants and demigods, as some readers have imagined, the Hebrew name of these vaunted children of the mixed marriages when they became mighty men merely supplied a rationale for unrighteous boasting by their parents and for rejecting Noah's warnings. Their Hebrew name, Nephilim, is apparently derived from the verb nafal, fall. They are therefore thought by rabbinical commentators to have been fallen ones, rather than persons of gigantic stature. The Greek Septuagint rendered the Hebrew word as gigantus for reason unknown. Nephilim is one of four different Hebrew words translated giants in the King James Version of the Old Testament. But this is one of those situations where translation kind of didn't really reflect what the intent was behind the words, the original words. Um, and you kind of look at it as, oh, these were people who thought themselves bigger or better than the prophet Noah who thought themselves like they, they, you know, where it says uh, they were unrighteous, boasting by their parents and for rejecting Noah's warnings. So giants, not in their stature, but maybe in their perception of themselves, they were bigger than what Noah was talking about. Does that make sense? Yeah. The other one in, in verse 11 says, the earth was also corrupt before God and the earth was filled with violence. And there's a, a quote by Elder Maxwell in his book, For I Will Lead You Along. Um, and it says, We are told that some conditions preceding the second coming of the Savior will be as in the days of Noah. Noah's time was one of disobedience and wickedness. People were uncomprehending and knew not until the flood came. The choking cares and pleasures of this life led to the general rejection of Noah's prophetic message. Two especially interesting words are used in the Bible to describe Noah's, Noah's time. 
Violence and corruption. Violence and corruption, seldom strangers to the human scene, appear to be increasing today. And it's interesting because, you know, when we talk about the last days, wars and rumors of wars and all this stuff. And yeah, where we become kind of desensitized to the existence of war, to the existence of violent conflict, to the existence of abuse, where abuse becomes more prevalent, attacking people becomes a more common way to settle a dispute. Like even person on person violence is becoming more and more common. And it's not to say that it hasn't happened because clearly it did back you know, in the beginning of time almost. We all had the same problems and we've had it throughout all of time. But I think what Elder Maxwell is saying there is, you know, there's some parallels to our day and, and the time of Noah as well. Those who don't listen to the prophet tend to experience a lot more violence and corruption. So in the one of the good one of my favorite manuals to read along with the Old Testament is the Institute manual. And it's it's I really like it because it poses questions to think about and then it gives us some some possible answers. And with the flood, with Noah's, with we know that the people were wicked, and Noah was ridiculed for 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 following the Lord, almost like every prophet is. But there is one question in Genesis seven seven where where it says, "Were there any saved by means other than the ark?" And and I think and I really like this section because it kind of well I'll, let me read it. It says, "Then the first two thousand two thousand two hundred or so years of the earth history." That is, from the fall of Adam to the ministry of Melchizedek, it was not uncommon occurrence for faithful members of the church to be translated and taken into heavenly realms without tasting of death. Since that time, there have been occasional special instances of translations, instances in which special work of the ministry required it. Then it says Methuselah, the son of Enoch, was not translated with the city of Enoch. That the covenant of, and then it's it's um, quoting Moses 8. Moses chapter 8 verse 2 it says that the covenant of the Lord might be fulfilled which he made unto Enoch for he truly covenanted with Enoch and Noah that Noah should be of the fruit of his loins but during the nearly 700 years from the translation of Enoch to the flood of Noah it would appear that nearly all the faithful members of the church were translated for the Holy Ghost fell on many and there were many caught up by the power of powers of heaven into Zion from Moses 7 27 and I thought that was interesting that that they were that it appears that they're saying that there were more people that were righteous that were also saved the the flood is something where people always argue was this like is this literal or was it like allegory you know and the answer is yes <laughs> like there was a literal flood sure um but I think did it cover the entire earth or the earth according to Noah's perspective? Or was it the entire, uh, according to the scriptures? Yes. It's weird, it's weird to me that it gives measurements of depth of the water in cubits, you know, because it says like, oh, it's 15 cubits and then da, 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 and it was over the tops of the mountains. And I'm like, for you to be able to measure the depth, like, I don't know. I don't know that it necessarily covered every single inch of the entire earth. Um, at the same time, we always talk about, in, especially in the church, as the flood being the earth's baptism, right? That it was cleansed, that it was baptized, and we know that baptism is by immersion, so it has to be the entire earth completely submerged, you know, don't want his toe poking up. <laughs> but I don't know that it's necessarily that 
literal. But the, the focus of the flood isn't necessarily you know, how much water was there. The focus of the, pl the flood should be what did it accomplish? And what it what accomplished was it cleansed the earth of the wicked. And there's a quote by John Taylor. He said, um, wickedness increased until it was decided that they should be destroyed, that they might be deprived of the privilege of perpetuating their species. Why? Let us suppose that you and I, that you and I were there as spirits awaiting the privilege of taking bodies and that we could see the wickedness and corruption that was going on upon the earth. Is it right and just that we who have done no wrong should have to enter in such corrupt bodies and partake in the influences which, with which they were surrounded? No, says the father, it is not just. It is an act of justice and righteousness. I hear that quote and it makes sense to me, but at the same time, I'm like, there's a lot of people that are not doing the right thing that have children. There's a lot of mean, hateful, you could call them wicked people that bring children into the world. So why is it different now than it was back then? And my only response to that, my only answer for that is that back then there was not enough good people to make up for it. There weren't enough good people in, in the society to make up for a bad home situation or a bad neighborhood situation or something like that. And now there's enough that if you even if you're born into a bad situation at home or a bad situation in your country or neighborhood, whatever it may be, there's enough other good people in the world that you still have a way out. You still have a way to to move past that. That's my only thought is that back then there was really just not enough to compensate for the wicked. Yeah. The, another name for the flood is the deluge. deluge? Yeah. I think it's called that. There's along the lines of what you're talking about, about the reason for the flood. Another another perspective to consider is, is this quote from John Taylor, where he talks about in, in journal discourses, he's talking about the deluge. He's quoting here. He says, I will first send them my word, offering them deliverance from sin and warning them of my justice, which shall certainly overtake them if they reject it. And I will destroy them from on the face of the earth, thus preventing their increase. And I will raise up another seed. And then it says, well, they did reject the preachings of Noah, the servant of God, who was sent to them. And consequently, the Lord caused the rains of the heavens to descend incessantly for 40 days and nights, which flooded the land. And there being no means of escape, save for the eight souls who were obedient to the message, all the others were drowned. But but says the cavalier, is it right that a just God should sweep off so many people? Is that in accordance to mercy? The answer is yes. It, it was just to those spirits that had no not received their bodies yet. It was just to just and merciful too to those people guilty of the iniquity. Why? Because by taking away their earthly existence, he prevented them from entailing their sins upon their posterity and denigrating them, and also preventing them from committing further acts of wickedness. So that's kind of weird. Yeah, that to me that feels really sticky because it's like, well, doesn't that take away agency? Doesn't that decide? Any catastrophe is a great mercy. Yeah, it's kind of like, uh, I mean, I get what he's saying and I agree to it, agree with it to a point. But I also am like, you could argue that a tornado happened and wiped out this town and say, well, it's because they deserved it. You know, it's like, uh, 
it's it's easy to look at these old old historical events and either think it's either black or white. It, yeah. it, they either deserve it or they didn't, you know. But what we do know is one that happened a really long time ago. We don't have very much data, but mm-hmm. then what other data points can we add to the story? Well, let's see how merciful the Lord and Jesus Christ are. What are other examples of the extent of their mercy and patience towards people? Well, a lot of those examples are in the Book of Mormon. We find repeatedly the Lord forgiving the people, helping them out of bondage, helping them prosper, and then they go forget about him. And then it starts over, and he helps them and prosper. And the whole Book of Mormon is one story about how Ultimately, it was the people's choices why they lost the prophets, you know. And then we look at other examples when, you know, we're soon going to talk about Abraham. And when Abraham and Lot, he's he's in 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 Sodom or Gomorrah, one of those, I think it's Sodom. And 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 Abraham's like, okay, well, what if what if what if I can find ten people that are righteous or a hundred people? Okay, go try. What if okay? What if we we can find ten? Okay, what if we can find one? Okay, what if we just rescue Lot and his family? How about that? What if we just get him out, please? And so we see that although historically how it's written, it's really easy to highlight the main event. We often miss a lot of finer details of how loving and merciful the Lord is. And especially when we look at Nephi, when he continuously quotes Isaiah to his brothers, always explaining how the Lord gathers his people, like a hen gathers her chicks, like his arms stretched out still, you know, and how Isaiah gets so poetic into here is the love of the Savior. How how often has he forgiven you? How often will he recall you, Israel? And it's like this pleading of how you cannot complain that something is going bad when you have ignored the Lord for so long that he has been trying. I, I think Noah is a perfect example of if they would have heeded him, things would have been different. Yep. And it's kind of... A, a small example of our own lives where if we so many times if we would have heeded all of the warnings we could have avoided a very unpleasant outcome you know yeah and i think we also the bible makes it seem like the lord woke up one day and was like okay i've had enough i'm gonna destroy these people you know control alt delete we're gonna reset this whole thing and start over with noah Noah, you're the new adam multiply and replenish the earth right um but we don't know how long this went on. We don't know how long necessarily Noah was out there telling people, hey, we need to change. We need to stop. We need to repent. We need to change the way you're doing things because the Lord will will stop us if not, you know. And when he starts building the ark and people are like, what the heck are you doing? He's like, I'm building an ark because I'm telling you it's coming. Now is the time to prepare to meet God. And they're like, yeah, sure, whatever, Noah. And he just, we don't know how long that took. It looks like it just happened over a couple of days, but there's no way that it did. I do want to talk about the Ark a little bit. Uh, There's a couple of quotes I found that were pretty interesting because we only have uh, a few verses that get into the details of the Ark, but he does give exact like parameters for its design in verse 15 of Genesis 6. And so the question is, why did he give him the design for it? And the answer comes from uh, Bradshaw in his book, Frequently Asked Questions About Science and Genesis. He said, 
It is significant that apart from the tabernacle of Moses and the temple of Solomon, Noah's Ark is the only man-made structure mentioned in the Bible whose design was directly revealed by God. Noah's Ark seems to have been designed as a temple, specifically a prefiguration of the tabernacle. The Ark's three decks suggest both the three divisions of the tabernacle and the threefold layout of the Garden of Eden. Indeed, each of the decks of Noah's Ark was exactly the same height as the tabernacle and three times the area of the tabernacle court. I had no idea about that. That's pretty awesome. That is way awesome. And then you think, you know, what does that mean about degrees of glory? What does that mean about the Godhead? Like, there's a lot of symbolism there as well. And then the other thing was in verse 14, it says, Make thee an ark of gopher wood. Room shalt thou make in the ark, and, and shalt pitch it within and without with pitch. And um, these individuals, I don't know who they are. Perry and Perry wrote a book, Symbols and Shadows. And they said, the ark was built of gopher wood, referring to a tree biblical scholars have not been able to identify. Noah was instructed to pitch it within and without. In other words, he was to cover the wood with a waterproofing substance. The Hebrew word KPR, I'm not even going to try that one, translated pitch in this verse is used many other times in the Bible. The word as used in Genesis 6.14 denotes a protective covering. In every other instance where this Hebrew word is found, it refers to the atonement. The atonement of Jesus Christ provides us with a protective covering. It shields us from the protect, from the power of the adversary, just as the pitch protected the ark from the life-threatening waters. When you start to look at what this actually means, whether the flood covered the whole earth or not, whether we had every single species of animal on the boat or not, this is a very symbolic thing. And what it represents is as, as merciful as God is, he will also, he cannot deny justice. But there's two sides to that. Yes, he wiped out all the wicked people. But for every time that he wiped out Sodom and Gomorrah, that he wiped out all the wicked people in the flood, there's always an ark. There's always a way that he shows mercy and saves those who follow. And he envelops you in the atonement and protects you, right? You think about that. What is the protection? The temple, the tabernacle for them the covenants that we make therein. All of that is tied into this. We look at it as this cute little story, you know, that we tell kids and then you put two of each animal in the boat and then they sailed around for a long time and then they were good. But there's so much more depth to this story, I think, than we often give it credit for. Yeah. I, I like that a lot. I've never heard that before, but it fits in really well. And the, the thought I was having was, you know, the ark, it being the temple, basically. So the temple is enough to save the posterity of Adam, meaning you, and all the creations that God made, you know? And maybe that's the purpose of the animals, is to show that, hey, all the creations are saved by the atonement. So that's that's really that's really interesting. I've, I've never looked at it that way. That makes a lot more sense, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> yeah. Well, it also makes you think, like, I mean, this is another figurative way of looking at it, but sometimes you do feel like you're overwhelmed by the world. You feel like you're flooded. You feel like I'm just the, the burdens of my life are too great. And where can you go for protection? You can go to the temple. You can go to this little pocket of heaven where you can experience peace, where you can commune with the Lord a little bit and say, this is what I'm going through. You know, carry me through the waters for a little bit and help me find land again. Yeah. And I think that that's really cool. It's interesting how we um, 
during the beginning of COVID where we were allowed to have sacrament in our home. Yeah. It kind of opened up just how merciful the Lord is and the fact that if you can't go to where the ordinance is, the ordinance comes to you, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's very symbolic of the plan of salvation. Even those who die without knowledge will get an opportunity. Those who died even with knowledge, but not everything went as planned, will get an opportunity. You know, it's not an all or nothing. The plan of salvation is is designed to save people, not to condemn them, right. not to drown them for no reason, right? But like the ark is even more in that realm where if if everything goes wrong, if all you can be is just a floating vessel at sea, it can be that. The gospel can sustain you. To, I think about how, what kind of faith Noah had to have. It's uh, and especially after the fact. I mean, it speaks in the scripture about him. He would send a dove out to see if is a time, you know. So, so he himself was also operating with knowledge and with faith, kind of like how we live. The Lord didn't say, "Hey, you know." Now we read back the story and it's like 40 days and blah, blah, blah. He might not have known very much of that. It's just like, prepare, go. When you're out there, uh, find a way of figuring out when it's going to be safe or what kind of thing gives you hope. And I, I don't know. It just it, it just feels like like most of the great servants that we think, oh, I wish I could be like them because then I would know for sure. I think not all of them knew everything for sure. I think they knew cer- certain things for sure and always had to continue to exercise faith. And um, But the Lord, like always, in, tells us in the scripture, those who wait upon the Lord shall not be ashamed. Meaning the Lord will always come through. And just like the dove came back with, you know, the olive branch in its beak or, or whatever, right, or, or the leaf, uh, or Nephi finding the promised land, the Jaredites eventually making, you know, all of these great moments of faith are very akin to our own lives, you know, moments where we have to prepare our arc, we're going to change something or we're trying to accomplish something or something in our lives. And there may be times when we're just floating, holding on to our faith, waiting for the waters to recede. Mm-hmm. And as much as that, those moments can can be difficult, the Lord is always sure. That it's comforting for all of us to know that even a guy who was guided by the Lord to build an ark, that he was receiving revelation about what was going to happen. There were still moments when he had to go off of faith. There were still moments when he had to just be like, I'm going to send a dove out, see what happens, because I don't know what's happening. And that not knowing everything doesn't mean that you aren't being guided by the Spirit, that you aren't being guided by the Lord. Because a lot of times it's like, well, clearly if this person were really a prophet, he would know. Maybe not. Maybe, maybe there's certain things that you still don't know. We get a lot of, of genealogy in these chapters, too. A lot of cool names. If you're looking for a new baby name, um, Hadaram, Havilah, uh, <laughs> a lot of good ones. <laughs> um, <laughs> it also talks about, we, we get into... You know, a few years probably after the whole Ark incident, the descendants uh, decide to build the Tower of Babel. And this is a really interesting story. For me, I always pictured that the goal of these people was to build a tower to heaven 
because there's a scripture in here somewhere that kind of says that uh, in verse four of Genesis 11. And they said, go to let us build a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven. And let us make us a name lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. So in my mind, I was like, these people really thought that they could build a tower all the way to where God is in heaven. And how foolish is that? Like, no one was like, I don't think that's a thing, guys. <laughs> I don't think that's possible. But I don't think that that was really the intent. I think really what it was, was let's build a tower to show how how powerful we are, that we are the same as as God. And there's a, there's a quote by Donaldson in his book, Is There Additional Background in, Information on the Tower of Babel? It says, the tower was an apostate attempt to build a temple. First, the impetus in building this temple was to make themselves a name. In other words, Nimrod was proposing that they build a temple to receive the name of God without making eternal covenants. Second, they wanted to build this tower temple so they would not be scattered. Nimrod and his people were building their own temple, their gate to heaven, without divine approval or priesthood keys. It is easy to see why an apostate people, having some understanding of temple ordinances and temple purpose, would construct an edifice symbolizing to them an imitation of true temple worship. And that to me makes a heck of a lot more sense than we're going to build a tower tall enough to touch heaven, right? It's more like we are building this temple in order to circumvent the right processes of the Lord. Yeah. So that we can, we, we, we know enough about that. We can do it ourselves. And that's the pride of, you know, Nimrod, they, they, he mentions that he's a, a great hunter he also boasted that no animal could escape his bow, turn that bow against men as well as animals, ruling all the earth with his inspired violence. He was the mortal enemy and rival of Abraham. Whereas Abraham gave Adam's blessing to the beast, Nimrod ordered thousands of cattle to be brought and sacrificed them. Nimrod really thought he was something. And uh, maybe that's why his name turned into like an insult. But <laughs> um, <laughs> call somebody a Nimrod's not necessarily a good thing. He he and his people honestly thought, you know, we're going to we know enough about temple ordinances and what it takes to have a temple. We're going to build our own gate to heaven. Right. Yeah. So, so some of the things I've read go along those lines. I like uh, the first two thousand years. I thought that was an interesting book that gave you a different perspective. But that makes with a little bit of uh, Josephus it kind of explains that the, the attempt of the Tower of Babel was wasn't to get to heaven. But it was so they could be strong enough. So if a flood came again, right. they wouldn't be. Uh, it, it was more of a symbol that we are going to live after our own matter, and we can we can be strong enough where God can't tell us what to do. Type, which is kind of the same thing as building their own temple or their own ideology, and trying to show that through their collective strength, they are stronger than God, basically, or or, or that. Which is really cool because when you look at it that way, like how you mentioned, you're kind of saying it's almost like you're you're setting yourself above God. Right. And and that I would say in our day, there are so many Tower of Babel types out there. Oh, yeah. Um, A lot of things can we we tend to oh i understand this so therefore i can discredit this or i can stand on my own or i don't need this and that and the thing is is that the gospel of jesus christ is not a controlling mechanism it's never been it's the greatest kingdom that will ever exist the only true way to govern 
is the way our God does it. But he respects people's agency. And and people try to shy away from the commandments or, or recoil against them because they see it as controlling. And it's almost like, hmm, that's like saying I'm going to drive a car but not wear a seatbelt because I don't want to be told what to do, you know? <laughs> yeah. Or I'm not going to obey the traffic laws. I know better. And it's kind of like, no, in order we gain freedom, you know, the freedom to travel, the freedom to do things that, you know, and as we all pay attention to that order and respect it, we become more free. Go place yourself in a situation where you're in gridlock traffic and everybody's trying to do their own thing and no one cares for the rules. (laughs) There's individually a false sense of freedom, but that the disregard for the rules is actually limiting your freedom. And that's how God's commandments are. And, and that's where we say, well, the, the prophets come and they always tell in Noah, you know, and, and, and these individuals, they, they preach. And it's not because God is trying to subjugate you. God's trying to teach you and make you free. And when we start understanding that, <clears throat> I think we, we tend to, we can then apply kind of new lenses to our life and see what are the things in my life where I'm building my own Tower of Babel thinking I know better. Right. As opposed to let God prevail, the the theme that our prophet has given us. By letting him prevail, we prevail. That's the tricky part that, that we don't see. By following the individual who loved us so much to give his own life for us, we often think, Oh, by following you, I'm going to have less. And it's the opposite. He wants to give you everything by following him. And that's also in this story with the Tower of Evil. We know in the Book of Mormon, this is where the brother Jared is around this time. Mohonrai Moriankamer, right? And the brother Jared and his people, and they 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 branch off. And so we, we also hear their story in the Book of Mormon that ties all the way back to this time to the Tower of Evil, which is pretty cool. And- we know the direct result when these people built started building this tower is that the Lord confounded their language and confounded them. And that's what the brother of Jared and his all his people were were praying for was protection from that. Right? Let us not be confounded. And really what it was was we don't want to be wrapped up in the in the the problems that are going to be facing everyone else. Let's let's make sure that we pray and that we show the Lord that we're being faithful so that he can spare us from what's going to happen to everyone else. And he was. I mean, they were able to, they still had to leave, but they were guided on what to do next. And it's interesting because I've always also thought like about this languages thing because, you know, we can kind of trace the genealogy of languages back through time and how they developed and stuff. And I've always been like, so what was that like when suddenly... What like did someone randomly start speaking Chinese? You know, like how how did this whole confounding of languages thing work? And there's a, a quote by Hugh Nibley. Um, in his he wrote uh, Lehi in the Desert, World of the Jaredites. It says the Book of Ether, depicting the uprooting and scattering from the tower, shows them going forth not individually but in groups, and not merely family groups, but groups of friends and associates. There is nothing said in our text about every man suddenly speaking a new language. We are told in the book of Ether that languages were confounded with and by the confounding of the people. Cry unto the Lord, says Jared, that he will not confound us, that we may not understand our our words. 
The Lord, we are told, did not confound the language of Jared, and Jared and his brother were not confounded. So really, it's not like all of a sudden there was all these new languages. What it was was no one could understand each other, and everything was being confused, and the Lord was the one saying, I'm just going to do this in order to stop them from building this tower. They don't have my permission to build a temple and to do whatever it is they're going to do in this temple. I'm going to stop them by confusing them and not being able to understand each other. Still kind of an interesting scenario. Like, I wonder what that was like. Um, I, I think I remember back in the day seeing a Living Scriptures video where suddenly they all start babbling in different languages and stuff, and they're all looking at each other like, what? What did you say? And <laughs> I don't know that it was that immediate. I don't know if it was an instantaneous thing or or what exactly, but that that's always fascinated me. Just like suddenly they couldn't understand each other, and it stopped the building of the tower and it was destroyed. All right. Abraham and Sariah. So basically, I mean, this is kind of a big deal in the Old Testament that Abraham is born. And that's why, that's really, I think, why a lot of this genealogy is in here. Um, because it's basically to back up the, the ancestry of Abraham and to reflect why he was such an important person. Going forward, we refer back to Abraham for the rest of the scriptures. Even in the Book of Mormon, they're referring to Abraham at times. I mean, the guy was an extremely important figure in, in the overall message of the gospel. And uh, he marries his wife, Sarai. And I found this really cool quote um, by uh, Hurd in, her, in their book, uh, Our Sisters in the Bible. It says, Sarai later known, is later known as Sarah. Sarah means princess from Genesis 11:29 through 17:15. The form of the name used is Sarai. Sarai would play a major role in establishing the covenant people by demonstrating marital skill, not groveling submission, that made her the model obedient wife. It was that skill that earned her a full and equal partnership in the fulfillment of God's promise. And I think that we often overlook because they're not as they're not mentioned as much, but I think just as any other influential uh, man would say, they were only able to do that in many ways because of the support and uh, even encouragement of their wife. And so I think a lot of times we, we tend to overlook them because they're not mentioned as much. Abraham is obviously mentioned a lot more. But Sar Sarai and Sarah is actually the one who experienced the miracle of being barren and then no longer being barren. She's the one who received that miracle. And that's pretty that's pretty interesting. Pretty cool. Yeah, there also in in the manual there in addition to the lesson there's kind of an entire section explaining the Abrahamic covenant. Yeah. Which is really interesting and which we are still uh that's still in effect as we are as as we are baptized and follow Christ that covenant that that the Lord made with Abraham is a covenant that's made to us whether we are literal or adopted into the tribes, it's the same thing. And as we've read in the scriptures, our, our blessings from those covenants are predicated on our obedience and our agency. Just as when Christ was speaking with the Pharisees and they were kind of saying, well, we're children of Abraham. And he says, well, I can get children of Abraham from these rocks, meaning if you are not following the covenant, just being born into the covenant or having made a covenant and not exercising it or living up to it 
doesn't profit you anything. Likewise, anyone with a pure heart that's a true follower of Christ will be given the opportunity to receive all of these blessings and covenants that the Lord made with Abraham. So it becomes a template of what kind of relationship we can get to with the Lord where he covenants with us, eternal increase, basically, and to and to be one with him and his authority. And that extends to men, women, children, and to posterities. Um, it's, yeah, anyway. But, I mean, the best thing would be to read that entire section about it, <laughs> summarize it a little bit. But. Yeah, I think it's also interesting. I read this quote. It says, Abraham is the 10th generation from Shem, just as Noah was the 10th generation from Adam. From the scriptural point of view, the birth of Abraham constitutes a turning point in human history. The 10 generations from Adam to Noah is meant to describe the origin of the world and the first divine covenants of God's servants, while the 10 generations from Noah to Abraham portray the origin of his covenant nation, Israel. And that's the same covenant that you were just talking about, the one that we all share is the Abrahamic covenant. So it's just kind of interesting how the Lord kind of spaced that out and paced it in a way that would make sense. He's he line up building line upon line, covenants and then covenants and then covenants and so on. So we can have the fullness of the gospel. Become an engaged learner. Immerse yourself in the scriptures to understand better Christ's mission and ministry. Know the doctrine of Christ so that you understand its power for your life. Internalize the truth that the atonement of Jesus Christ applies to you. Every time you plug in your phone, use it as a reminder to ask yourself if you have plugged into the most important source of spiritual power, prayer and scripture study, which will charge you with inspiration through the Holy Ghost. It will help you know the mind and will of the Lord to make the small but important daily choices that determine your direction. My dear brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ invites us to take the covenant path back home to our heavenly parents and be with those we love. He invites us to come follow me. Thank you.